0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays.
1: The first reading is taken from Isaiah chapter fifty-one, verses seventeen to twenty-two, and can be found on page seven hundred thirty-nine of the Church Bibles. <clears throat> awake, awake! Rise up, O Jerusalem! You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath You who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger Of all the sons she bore there was none to guide her Of all the sons she brought up there was none to take her by the hand These double calamities have come upon you Who can comfort you? Ruin and destruction, famine and sword Who can console you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like antelope caught in a net. They are filled with the wrath of the Lord and the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this, you afflicted one, made drunk but not with wine. This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath. You will never drink again. The second reading is taken from St Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, verses 32 to 42, and can be found on page 1021 of the Church Bibles. They went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them, stay here and keep watch. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation The spirit is willing but the body is weak Once more he went away and prayed the same thing When he came back he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy They did not know what to say to him Returning the third time he said to them Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Our Father God, as we approach Easter, as we begin this new series in Mark's Gospel, as we go once again to Calvary with Jesus. We pray for your help to know him and to love him more. We pray most especially this morning that we might find hope and help in your word written for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please do sit down. And as you do so, if you could find the the Bible that you had just a moment ago. And turn back again, if you've closed it, to Mark uh, chapter 14 page 1021 there's also some space inside the service sheet there um, if you'd like to make notes but even if you wouldn't there are some headings and some some things to read so do follow along there as well i wonder if like me you've ever left a christian meeting or gathering fired up to do anything for god Ready to take on the world for him, ready to do anything for him, only to find yourself in a relatively short space of time seemingly incapable of even the smallest act of obedience. Now, perhaps like me, you've, you've left a, a meeting or, or something with, with, with lots of missionary zeal, ready to go anywhere, to do anything, to take the gospel to a needy world only to find yourself pretty soon after feeling too frightened too tongue tied even to mention the name of Jesus even to a relatively close friend perhaps again like me you've you've been to a a conference or or a bible week or something and left filled with a deep desire to love other people sacrificially only to find it seriously difficult to Even speak politely, even to your own family, even in the car on the way home. In short, do you really want to do great things for Jesus, but sometimes you just struggle to obey? Well, if that's you, then this passage is is for you. Come to Gethsemane. We're going to see the most remarkable obedience. The remarkable obedience of Jesus here in the garden. And in that, we will find both hope and help. You'll see from your handout that we'll we'll learn, I think, specifically to trust the obedient Jesus to suffer God's wrath as our own disobedience is revealed. And that just breaks down into a couple of headings, and you'll see the first there. Trust the obedient Jesus to suffer God's wrath. Having said all that, it... You might be forgiven for looking at this passage, especially at first glance, and thinking that Jesus, well, doesn't seem very obedient here. Or it might at least concern you, as it has for some others down the centuries, that this passage, well, it doesn't really show Jesus in the best light. It is certainly true that, that at this point in Mark's gospel, that the mood changes somewhat we're jumping in here at chapter 14 as we begin this new series. But if you, if you were to read through the preceding chapters, and many of you will know them well, you would find a Jesus who is supremely in command. You know, he answers questions and critics deftly and with authority. He delights the crowds. He walks on water. He heals the sick. He raises the dead. And earlier in this same chapter, he's just directed the disciples to find a Passover meal all ready and prepared, as if it appeared from nowhere. And then later, sitting around that same table, as with great drama, he dipped bread in the bowl. And very calmly, it seems, declares that one of those sitting around the table with him will betray him to death. More than that, as he says later, they will all go on to desert him. Despite all of that, Jesus is still able to say, look up to chapter 14, verse 21. You see it there? The son of man will go just as it is written about him. So despite all Jesus knows very well is coming his way, that, that is betrayal, abandonment, agonizing, lonely death, there is a steady, measured obedience to carry out his father's mission. Very impressive. And yet, and yet here, as we enter the garden scene at Gethsemane, that, that seems to vanish. And Jesus seems to begin to fall apart emotionally. Read again with me from verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said, said to his disciples, sit here and pray. He took Peter, James and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. It might just be me and forgive me if this is a morbid thought. But I sometimes wonder if I'll die well. It is a deeply Christian thing to do, isn't it? And of course many of us know Christian brothers and sisters who have faced death with the most remarkable courage and hope. And of course the Bible and Christian history are littered with Christians perhaps being severely persecuted, even killed for their faith, who do seem to face death with the most remarkable courage and hope. It always makes me think of the reformer Hugh Latimer who was burned at the stake in 1555 with his friend Nicholas Ridley for believing and for teaching the gospel. And as they were about to die, Latimer is said to have turned to Ridley. Remember, they're about to die. And this is what he says. Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. It Makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, doesn't it? I actually want to adopt a sort of Churchillian voice uh, as I say it. There is a great legacy of Christians dying well. And frankly, there are those even without the hope of the gospel who sometimes seem to face death with courage. John Stott writes this, it's on your handout there. Socrates met his end in the prison cell in Athens. He drank his cup of hemlock, Plato wrote, without trembling, very cheerfully and quietly. On the other hand, here in the garden, as Jesus begins to move towards his death, he is overwhelmed by grief and sorrow. He seems to stagger at the sheer horror of what lies before him. More than that, and here is where it gets really shocking, he doesn't make a stirring speech like Latimer. There's no cheerful resignation like Socrates. Here's the really shocking bit. What does Jesus do? Well, he asks for a way out. Verse 35, going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. It seems to me that the question that hangs in the air is this. Why do so many of Jesus' followers seem to die better than he does? Why do so many of Jesus' followers seem to face death better than he does? It's an interesting question, don't you think? The answer can only be that Jesus faces something that none of his followers ever have, nor ever will, face The answer can only be that that Jesus faces something more, more than mere physical death. It it is interesting, actually, as you read through the various gospel accounts, the writers give relatively few column inches to describing the physical agony of the cross. The descriptions are fairly short. What then? What then does Jesus face that, that leaves the eternal Son of God overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death look at his prayer again in verse 36 the answer is there I think he prays everything is possible for you take this cup from me it feels like an odd turn of phrase doesn't it that is unless you know what the cup stands for The cup is the the great biblical symbol of God's wrath. That is his burning anger at at human sin and evil. It's what Tim Keller calls divine justice poured out, poured out on human injustice. Now The scriptures are filled with this image of, of the cup of God's wrath. For example, you heard about it in our reading from Isaiah 51, verse 17. Don't turn to it now. Here's what it says. Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. And so here in the garden, as Jesus begins to feel the, the weight of bearing the full force of divine justice poured out on human injustice. That is Jesus, the sinless man, as he prepares to face the wrath, the burning anger, the judgment of God on every human evil, which, let's face it, is on a scale way, way beyond our imagining. As Jesus begins to consider drinking that cup, It makes him stagger. And all the more so as well because it is the wrath of his own father, with whom he has enjoyed nothing but perfect, intimate, sweet relationship since before the dawn of time. Tim Keller puts it well. He says If a mild acquaintance turns on you, it is painful. If someone you're dating does the same thing, it is qualitatively more painful. But if your spouse does this to you or one of your parents does this to you while you're still a child, the psychological damage is infinitely worse. Here's the point. We cannot fathom, however, what it would be like not just to lose the spousal love or parental love that has lasted a few years, but the infinite love of the Father that Jesus had from all eternity. And all of that makes it all the more remarkable, all the more remarkable that Jesus ends his prayer again, verse 36, yet, yet. Not what I will, but what you will. See, far from... Undermining our our confidence in Jesus or in his obedience to his Father's will. Everything, everything in, in the grim and gritty reality of this passage ought to give us firm, firm trust in Jesus and in his obedience. You see, in stark contrast to the disciples, where is Jesus in this time of crisis? Is he asleep? no is he running from God I mean remember he's the sinless man it's dark the disciples are asleep he's alone he has no sin of his own to bear and in that sense he doesn't need to go to the cross he could just walk he could just slip off into the night I think that's what I would have done is that what Jesus does no where is he Well, he's praying, bringing his woes to the father. The father he calls Abba, daddy. And even now, even as he staggers at at the prospect of bearing the father's wrath, he comes to that same father independent prayer. And ultimately, of course, he submits, obeys. And all of that is, is in stark contrast to the disciples, which, which brings us to the second point. Trust the obedient Jesus to bear God's wrath, point two, as your, as your disobedience is revealed. As your disobedience is revealed. I do think we begin to see um, Jesus and the disciples in, in starker and starker contrast, especially from this point uh, in the gospel. Remember, they, they've just come from the Passover meal, And remember, Jesus has just dropped the bombshell uh, that one of them is going to betray him to death. He said that at a dinner party. Uh, And more than that, that all of the 12 will eventually desert him. Now, despite all of that, uh, the disciples remain confident, resolute, that they would never desert Jesus. We would never do that, Lord, not I. In fact, it's interesting that the three that go to Gethsemane with uh, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, They have all, very specifically at some point in the gospel, um, made uh, public specific promises to Jesus never to leave him, never to desert him. For example, you can see Peter's bold speech. Just look up the page to verse 31 there. But Peter said emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Well, here we are in the garden. Jesus is fast approaching the hour of his death. He said himself, he's overwhelmed with grief and sorrow to the point of death. And where is Peter now? Well, he's he's asleep. such a, a time of crisis and danger. Jesus has said calls for alertness and watchfulness. Such a time calls for dependent prayer. And yet as Jesus returns each time, three times in all, which I'm sure is a little echo of Peter's threefold denial, which is still to come. He finds them not watchful. Not at all, he finds them drowsy. He finds them not in prayer, but, well, asleep. It does seem as though obedience to God is not a natural character trait that the disciples, or if we were honest, we seem to enjoy. Something about the way we are just seems a bit, well, weak. It just seems a bit incapable of obedience. Don't you find that? I know I do. Why is that? It's an interesting question, don't you think? Why is it, verse 38, that Jesus can say, the spirit is willing, but the body is weak? I think we actually find, interestingly, the answer in another garden, a different garden, not the garden of Gethsemane this time, but the garden of Eden. See, our ancestor, Adam, actually, like Jesus, faced something of a test of obedience in the garden. See, only for Adam, the deal on offer, if I can put it that way, was a lot better, a lot better. See, God said to Adam, don't eat the fruit. Don't don't do it. In other words, obey me, and you will continue to enjoy life and blessing. Life and blessing. Don't eat the fruit. In other words, obey me, and you will continue to enjoy wonderful, sweet, uninterrupted, intimate relationship with me. And you think that Adam would obey but he didn't in his disobedience Adam set the pattern for each of his descendants including the first disciples including if we were honest us in great contrast in great contrast when Jesus faces his time of crisis in the garden this time in Gethsemane for him obedience to the father will not lead will not lead to life and blessing see in, in this case obedience leads to just the opposite for jesus it leads to death and curse obedience for jesus in this case will lead to not wonderful sweet uninterrupted relationship with the father the kind of which he has enjoyed since before the dawn of time no for jesus in this case obedience will mean the severing of that relationship as he bears the wrath on our behalf. And you would think Jesus wouldn't obey. But he does. He does. As I said at the beginning. Do, do you want to do great things for Jesus. But find that you struggle to obey. Sometimes even in the smallest task. But I did say that we'd find hope. Hope. And help here for disobedient people like us. There is great hope, isn't there? Why? Well, because Jesus is not at all like Adam. Jesus is not at all like us, come to that. His great obedience means that he did walk on to Calvary. Calvary. He did bear the wrath on our behalf, which, which should, should have been reserved for us. There is great hope there, isn't there? But there is help as well. There, there is help to change. I know how I need that. The Jesus obedience, it, it, it does buy, it does bring our salvation. But it does something else too. It, it also gives us a new identity. And it gives us a new example to follow. If I can put it this way. Our key influencer is no longer Adam but Christ. And so we can now. However imperfectly. Begin to follow. Begin to follow his example. Jesus has set us this new pattern. Of obedience to the father. So when you feel crushed, as I often do, by by an awareness of your own disobedience, your own sin and the guilt that that brings, well, look to the garden, look to Gethsemane. See the horror that Jesus has faced to remove that burden of guilt from you. And you may enjoy enjoy the fact that there is no condemnation for you now you are no longer in Adam but in Christ or if, if like me sometimes you just feel so slow to change and you feel that God must surely give up on you well look to the garden look to Gethsemane see the lengths to which Jesus has already gone Because of his great love for you. And be assured. Be assured of his infinite commitment to you. Or if you ever get to the stage where where you feel that God has just abandoned you. Again, look to the garden. Look to Gethsemane. See that at, at this hour, above all other hours, at this hour, Jesus did not abandon you. Quite the opposite, he pressed on himself to be utterly abandoned for your sake. And when you feel deeply your own needs to change, your own need to be more obedient to the Father, again, go to Gethsemane, look to the garden, see the example of Jesus. Jesus. The one who has set us a new pattern of obedience. Shall we pray together? We do praise you, Father, for the staggering, remarkable obedience of the Lord Jesus. We praise you for the hope and the help that he brings us. Help us to take hold of both that hope and that help. In Jesus' name, amen.